0: My guest today is the author and podcaster Katherine Hansen, and this is a conversation that I, and I suspect many of you, have been eagerly anticipating.
1: Yeah, for sure, and I was never like that until I started dieting.
0: But I know that calories can be problematic for people. What's your view on that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question too. I do think the way you used it as a framework to help you know what normal portions were, I think that's perfectly fine. And-
0: but did you ever have the experience of looking to try to blame something else for why you your body looked the way that it did and felt the way that it did?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I really love the calls coming from inside the house. I think I might have to use that.
0: More people are impacted by an overeating disorder than by a restri- by, than by restrictive eating disorders.
1: That's a it's a good point, and I I alluded to that a little in the beginning that I tend to see people on both spectrums.
0: My guest today is the author and podcaster, Catherine Hansen. and this is a conversation that I, and I suspect many of you, have been eagerly anticipating. In 2019, fresh from breast reduction surgery and feeling extremely low, possibly the lowest I'd ever felt about how my body looked, but also what I was doing to it with food, I read Catherine's book, Brain Over Binge, and it is no exaggeration to say that for me, it was life-changing. In the seven hours it took me to read, highlight and notate my copy, all of which I did in one session, some might call that a binge, I had something of a software update. What had been confusing to me before became crystal clear and I knew exactly what I needed to do to move forward. I also knew that rather than being a greedy, lazy, feckless lump, I was a woman struggling with a very real life-limiting eating disorder. But with Brain Over Binge, I had a way out. In sharing her own experience and helping so many people around the world, Catherine has since devoted her life and career to raising awareness about eating disorders, the impact they can have on individuals, and she also shares the tools to help people overcome them. In 2016, she started the Brain Over Binge podcast, and she also coaches one-to-one and in-group sessions. When it comes to emotional eating or overeating, it can be easy to assume there is something underpinning it. I myself have written about my experience in magazines and have spoken to many authors and editors, and each and every single one has said to me, can we not find the trauma that caused this problem? And I don't know as if I necessarily agree there has to be a trauma. Like Catherine, I don't believe binge eating has to have an emotional or a psychological cause. I don't believe, and I'm proof of the fact that you don't need extensive therapy to stop binge eating. I don't believe resetting your relationship with food requires restriction, and I don't believe you have to become a new slash better version of yourself to recover. And truthfully, this position isn't always well received, which is why I'm excited to dig into this topic and really get into it with Catherine. So, without any further ado, please welcome Catherine Hansen to the Emma Gunn Show. Welcome, welcome. How are you? Hi. I'm good. Thank
1: you so much for having me.
0: I'm so delighted to be chatting to you. And I think where I want to begin, if it's okay, is to find out what it's like for you. You're in Florida, I'm in London. And then a few years ago, some woman you've never met before starts wanging on about how your book has changed their life. And I'm guessing that I'm not the only person who has had this experience with the book since you published it. What is that like for you?
1: I mean, it's amazing. And no matter how many people I hear from, it's always just, it makes everything I do worth it. Because when I first started writing the book, I didn't know if anyone would read it. I self-published it. I, you know, did all my own editing and like, I just did not know that it would have the impact that it has. So I'm constantly overwhelmed and thankful that it has been able to reach people and change people's lives.
0: What was the experience like of writing it?
1: It took a long time. I So I recovered in 2005 and I didn't publish it until 2011. And really very shortly after I recovered in 2005, it was it was a promise to myself I had made while I was bulimic. I was like, oh my gosh, I, if I ever find a way out of this, I have to help other people because I don't want anyone to be stuck where I am. And then when I recovered in a way that wasn't really conventional, as you alluded to in your, your introduction, it was just really against everything I had learned in therapy. I had just taken a completely different path. And I was like, I have to get this story out here, out there in the world for people like me who are not helped by those more conventional paths, which do work for some people. And that's great. And I don't want to take away from that, but I think there has to be alternatives. So it was, it took a long time, you know, to get back to your original question. And because one, I was, kind of scared to put this message out there that went against the conventional therapy approach. And also it was pretty vulnerable to share what was going on in my life and the details of the binging. I mean, you read the book, you know, that I shared a lot of details. Um, so that part, and then I also had three children. I now have four, but I had three in the process of writing the book. So like that slowed it down a little bit as well
0: as a mother i mean i i don't have children but but i i would be lying if i said i hadn't thought about what i might potentially have passed on to a daughter had i had children have you had that in your own internal kind of how do i make sure that they don't experience this
1: i mean that that's a really good point and it's something that you know i don't blame my family at all but There was talk, there was always like weight consciousness and comments made that just weren't, they weren't terrible, but they also just weren't well thought out. And I think that goes on a lot where mothers just will talk about their diets, will talk about their weight and not really knowing what impact it's going to have. And this, you know, is something I experienced from many relatives growing up. And I just never wanted to pass that on to my kids. So we never... We never talk about diets. We never, of course, now they're teenagers and they hear about things and, you know, they do get those influences from elsewhere. But I always wanted the home to be a place where, you know, we focus on health. We enjoy our food. We don't talk about dieting or the way our body looks and things like that. So I think the the less people can talk about dieting and the more we can just promote loving yourself for who you are and how your body authentically shows up, just the less that this problem will affect people into the future.
0: Hmm. Okay, I know that we're going to dig in a lot deeper into so much that you've already said. But let's just backtrack to how I always start the show, which is to ask about my guests. How would you describe your relationship with risk? Because as I'm sure many uh, listeners will already have clocked, your biggest risk was writing Brain Over Binge in the first place. So how would you describe your relationship uh, with risk before we go into that specific risk?
1: Okay. Um, I'm actually kind of averse to risk, which is why it was kind of out of of character for me to publish it. But um, I tend to be a more of like, play it safe type of person in my life. I worry a lot, a little anxiety, which I know goes along with people who have the personality types to end up getting into eating disorder. So yeah, definitely a little risk averse.
0: A little risk averse. Why was it so risky then to put pen to paper?
1: Um, I just, I guess I imagined more of a backlash from my message, but you know, honestly, it's been mostly positive. Yeah, sure. I do have negative reviews on Amazon. I have had, you know, people in the more mainstream eating disorder fields be kind of upset about the message, but honestly, it's been pretty well received, like a needed message. I think that, like you also said, it's not always a trauma. Like there are people, a lot of people, which we'll dive into more who just get into this from dieting because Mm. you restrict your food. It causes a cascade of problems in your body and brain that can lead to binging. And that can lead to you developing this terrible habit of binge binge eating disorder or bulimia. And, you know, it doesn't always have to be a result of deep underlying psychological problems. And I think that message was needed more than it was like, um, shunned, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think when I when I think about an image that really comes into my mind every time I either see the book on the shelf or I think about the experience of reading the book, it's the the drive to college and almost that idea of in your head, almost sort of planning the food, thinking about what is going, what you're going to consume. And I just could really identify with that. And I think for me, that was the thing. It was realizing how much real estate thinking about food took up. And it wasn't just about the eating of it; it was about thinking yeah. about it, bargaining with myself about what I could and couldn't have. So, and it was just—it was all very convoluted and and didn't make any sense. If you had said those words out loud, if you'd written it as text and printed it as an Instagram meme, and like this is my train of thought about the next food that I ingest, it would look absolutely mental.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I was never like that until I started dieting. I mean, when I started restricting my food intake, that's when all those thoughts about food just started consuming me. And I felt like I woke up every morning and went to bed every night thinking about what I was going to eat and planning what I was going to eat and, and trying to control what I was not going to eat because I wanted to restrict and lose weight. And it just became a complete mess. And eventually my body and brain took over and I binged. And then that became something that got rewarded and reinforced and just I started craving over and over and the thoughts that drove that behavior like you said it, it when you step back from it it sounds absolutely crazy you know I felt crazy at the time but learning about it in terms of the brain it takes that it takes that feeling of I'm crazy away because it's like oh like this is what the brain does this is how brains maintain habits this is how, The reward center provides motivation for us to get these pleasurable um, substances. So it all like started to make sense. Oh, like this isn't really me. This is just how my brain is operating.
0: I think one of the most significant things that you talked about is the sort of the dominant brain and the less dominant brain, the uh, lizard brain. And what's the top brain called? I always forget.
1: Yeah, I mean, I try to simplify it between the higher brain and the lower brain okay. just to make it easier. <laughs> but it's really like the, the human brain and the prefrontal cortex. And then the, the primal brain or the primitive brain is that the, that's the lower brain. So the thing I always used to you, fight. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, do you want me to kind of dive into that or do you have a question?
0: Well, I was just going to say that from the um the thing that really helped me, honestly, from reading brain over image, and there's lots that really helped me. But it was understanding that the craving to, so say I just had my dinner and I was sitting down in the, in the living room watching television in the evening and 45 minutes to an hour after I'd eaten, I would be thinking that would, that would be the message that my brain would be sending me. And then all of a sudden my brain would send me images of pancakes (laughs) or like something that I knew was in the fridge. And to be able to, from having read the book, I could just go, well, you can think that all you like but the part of your brain that is going to stand you up, we're not working, we're not moving. (laughs) So I would just stay seated. Yeah. But yeah, Yeah, explain it in a bit more sort of um, uh, uh, a bit more um, detail because that was pretty crude.
1: (laughs) No, I mean, but I think a lot of people can relate to that. And the fact that you learn to stay seated, even though your brain was providing you these images, providing you this temptation, that's really the skill that I try to teach people to step into their higher brain, to realize that the higher brain, the our human brain, the prefrontal cortex is the center of our brain that provides us with the self-control function. And no matter what the primitive brain is urging us to do, we can, we have veto power. We can say no to that, even though like we may not have control of what goes through our mind, what we feel driven toward, you can stay seated. And once you really experience that, you know, it's hard to go back, because it's hard to take that lower brain seriously, when you realize you ultimately are in control. And if you choose to get up and follow those messages, that is ultimately, you know, your choice. And this is something that not everyone gets right away. And that's okay. Like, we can get out of practice using these self control functions, there can be, you know, issues that kind of can interfere with us using these self control functions. So it is something that we some people have to build up and learn. So, you know, if right now today you aren't able to do this, that's okay. Like this is a skill you can learn over time.
0: How, um, how has your recovery been? And I ask, and if it's too personal, tell me to step off, but Mm -hmm. I always describe it as not linear as a Mm non-linear experience. I don't think there will ever be a time in my life when I'm not aware of the fact that I am in recovery and that I, have to stay on top of it and there have been times I have to say I have gone months without incident but there have been times when I've suddenly caught myself in 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 behaviors that that I know are the precursor to binges for example standing at the kitchen counter eating eating out of the sort of shopping bag even though that's not yet a binge it's it's a precursor to what binges used to look like so that's when I think okay I need to slow down how has it been for
1: you Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. I've been recovered 18 years now. And so in a lot of ways, it just feels like a lifetime ago to struggle with food. Like food is not a struggle in my life. As all normal eaters know, of course, there's cravings. Of course, there's times that you overeat. Of course, there's imperfection. There's not, it's not like I'm a perfect eater sitting here today at all. But it's not a struggle. It's not, you know, anything I really think too much about on a daily basis. Um, I do enjoy eating, which I think is perfectly normal as well. Um, But back at the time that I recovered, I think I had an advantage in that I had given up dieting prior to stopping binging, I had really seen that dieting was a huge part of why I started this in the first place, actually the biggest reason that I started binging. And I had given it up, I had learned to eat relatively normal portions. So binging was kind of my final piece to bring me back to being a normal eater. And I find that a lot of times this isn't the case for people, people are trying to stop binging. And they're also still really attached to restricting, they don't exactly know how to follow their hunger and fullness, they don't know what normal amounts of food look like. So Mm -hmm. I will say that my experience, like when I stopped binging, that was when I recovered and I was already kind of back to normal eating habits. A lot of people take longer to get there. They may stop binging, but it takes them a year or more to really feel like they're in a good place with food where they are nourishing their bodies, where they're not restricting, where they don't feel at risk. So, you know, my time, like the time that I recovered I really felt normal pretty soon after I had urges to binge for about nine months after I stopped binging. But it really became easier, even in the first few weeks, once I stopped acting on that primitive drive to eat massive amounts of food, it really started to go away. And that's how our brains work, like what we don't use in our brain, we lose. So -hmm. that desire went away. And I was like eating normally. And I thought, wow, like, it can really be this simple. And, you know, that's my experience. And I know a lot of people who are very similar, but there is different timelines for different people.
0: I think um for me I definitely sort of bought into this idea that like the food commercials the food adverts on television when I was growing up when you'd see the bowl of cornflakes or you'd see people buttering their toast and they would always use a lot of butter or a lot of spread or what have you so when I would then do it I sort of felt like well I was entitled to eat that much and I had to relearn quantities for sure I wasn't just binge eating I was just overeating. I was never really satisfied. I would maybe have two slices of toast and I'd be like, well, fancy a third. So I had, I really had to sort of learn that, uh, the, the quantity stuff. So for me, and I've had pushback about this for me, the best and easiest, and also dare I say, the free metric that I could use in order to begin to, understand what appropriate size portions looked like and felt like was to use calorie counters now i don't live by those but in, but for me to understand to to go to go to find a normal way of eating that didn't in, that didn't mean or lead to to weight gain that was the easiest way for me to do it but i know that calories can be problematic for people what's your view on that
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question, too. I do think the way you used it as a framework to help you know what normal portions were, I think that's perfectly fine. And there, I feel like there's two different types of people. And of course, you know, there's many um, variations in between these two. But there is more of the restricting types, people who really are trying to eat as little as possible, and they're binging. And they may, may need to use calories to make sure they're eating enough. Like that is one of my recommendations I give to people, people who don't have a real strong negative association with calories and where it doesn't feel super diety to them, to count to make sure they're getting enough mm-hmm. and make sure you're going over a certain amount in, in the day. And and there's also people who really struggle, seemingly like you, with just constant overeating and really going over the amount of calories that their body needs to function. And so in that way, calories can be used as a gentle reminder of how much food you need. And it's doesn't have to be a strict thing. It doesn't have to be something where you get mad at yourself for going over. It's just a general framework that we, you know, we have to have a way to talk about quantities of food and calories is, is a good measure. Some people find, you know, actually measuring the food and counting the servings is more helpful. Some people find that, you know, they're already ready for a more intuitive approach, but there's many different ways to sort of structure your eating as you're recovering to make sure that you're nourishing your body because it's really, really important to make sure you're getting enough food like you can't continue to restrict and also end binging mm. and also like extreme overeating all the time doesn't feel good either and that's going to affect recovery in a negative way as well you
0: alluded to it earlier but you talked about you were somewhat uh nervous about how brain over binge would be received because it wasn't necessarily the mainstream message and i have to be honest in that um When I felt comfortable to talk about what I had done and it took me, I think it was six months before, just over six months because I wanted to lose the weight and be confident that I was keeping it off and it wasn't, as I have done many times, lose the weight and put it back on. I wanted to be confident with that. I but I was so excited because I thought, guys, I've got I've done it, I've found it. <laughs> it could really help you. <laughs> oh my God, if you're struggling in the way that I was and completely not realizing that everybody's struggle or journey with this is completely different. I was really surprised to experience some quite um some pushback, to be honest. Mm-hmm. To and yeah. only the other day I was talking to a friend, and we were talking about how she has also dropped a, a decent amount of weight recently but no one can compliment her on it <laughs> because you can't compliment people on you can't talk about that anymore because that's become super taboo you can't say oh you've lost weight because you never know what yeah. you don't know what trauma you're going to prod at or whatever it yeah. whatever it might be and we were talking and she said you know what's really rubbish about it though the fact that it really is much easier to navigate the world in a smaller body like the world is just an easier place and we simply cannot talk about that. But likewise, I've had people. But what was interesting about that conversation is she said, the only thing with you, Emma, is the way that you've done it just isn't accessible to me because you are hardcore. And I took a step back and thought, I don't believe that I'm hardcore at all. So then I went through, I was like, what have I been sharing that makes it look like I have done exactly what I said in the introduction, which has become a sort of hardcore version of myself. And it's it's very interesting how emotional each lens through which we look at this whole thing is and I guess now with your coaching as well how has that opened up your perspective because you must be seeing this issue through so many different eyes so many different sets of circumstances
1: yeah for sure um I did coaching for a while I'm actually doing a little bit of it again but I have a coach that works for me now um coach Julie Mann and she does the group and the one-on-one. So I just wanted to kind of clarify that. But I did it for a long time. And she um and working with people, she actually was a client a long time ago and recovered after 40 years. And now she's helping people with this approach. Um, but both Julie and I have seen like so many variations in how people came into this behavior and how people get out of this behavior. And I do think like there are some people who have the experience, like like we did, that it just flips a switch and you Suddenly, see, oh my gosh, these primitive urges are not something I have to follow. Some people are are more attached to the binging, like they really. It's easy to say, oh, it's not for emotions, it's not a way to cope, but some people have a hard time letting go of that idea. Um, There's that. There's people who are have a hard time letting go of restriction because they really fear what's going to happen to their weight those, those things hold people back, like really clinging to it as a coping mechanism, really clinging to the idea of restriction. And then also just having the habit for a long time. Like even coach Julie, like it took her much longer to access that self-control function because it's so well ingrained. So it took like many stops and starts. So as I work with more people, I do see that the timeline is different for everyone. I wrote, um, a second edition of my book. I don't know if you read the first edition or the second, but I have the second Best. behind me because I wanted to, you did the first. Okay. So I did realize like in the first, it, maybe it was a little more hardcore to use that word that you use. It was a little more like, okay, just like, don't listen to your brain. And in the second, I tried to, you know, be a little more sympathetic to the fact that everyone comes to this in a different way and recovers on a different timeline. And yes, these brain-based principles can apply really to anyone, but everyone uses them in a different way. So I hope, you know, the second book, the second edition of Brain Over Binge just kind of includes all of that while still empowering people to take control of this, because I don't want people to just be stuck in a maze of recovery forever.
0: Mm -hmm. Can I ask you what you think about the body positivity movement?
1: That's a big one. (laughs) I think it's great to have body positivity. Like, I do think it's great. There's nothing bad about having body positivity. Um, I also think that there are certain maybe scientific theories that, you know, maybe we could call facts about health that I'm, I'm not sure. Like... That's a hard question. (laughs) I'm dancing around the issue a little bit because I want people to feel good about themselves. I want people to be positive about their bodies. But if there are health consequences of being in a larger body because of how you're feeding it, because of the excess food, like if someone is in a larger body because that's how their body naturally shows up and that's healthy for them, then great. Absolutely. Be positive about that. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know when I was in a larger body for my personal genetic makeup, Because of the binging, because of all these excess, like terrible foods I was feeding myself on a day-to-day basis, it was horrible for me. And I can only imagine like the health that I would be at today or the lack of health if I would have kept doing that. So like for me to be positive about my body when I was hurting it, I don't know if it would have helped at all. It's just, it's, it's a hard thing because I think people need to also be realistic about the behaviors that they're doing and what that's doing to their health.
0: Did you ever think that it wasn't the food? And the reason I asked this question, and again, I appreciate I'm talking through such a personal lens, but it's so, even as a trained journalist, it's very difficult for me not to talk about this as a human being. I looked for every single reason other than my actions for why I was always overweight and struggled to maintain my weight. So it was my hormones. It was my ethnicity. It was where I grew up. It was, I suppose I did at some point try to find some sort of trauma that would explain it. It was societal expectations of women. It was the patriarchy, but it was never what I was putting in my mouth. And for me, the book really compounded the fact that, okay, it's, it's, the call is coming from inside the house, Emma. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and for me, that was really confronting, but in a, in a really, in a really beautiful and brilliant way, because actually, if you're looking all the time for a reason why something is happening, and then you just get sharp focus and go, oh, I'm the architect of this, which means if I'm the reason there's a problem, I can also be the solution. That was like, you know, the heavens opened, a beam of sunlight came down, I heard <laughs> the angels singing, and I felt really empowered by that. But did you ever have the experience of looking to try to blame something else for why you your body looked the way that it did and felt the way that it did?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I really love the call is coming from inside the house. I think I might have to use that. It's so true because there are, there are many factors that can contribute to people, you know, being vulnerable to this problem. So, you know, even though those factors could have contributed, like, let's say, you know, the patriarchy, for example, like maybe that contributed to your desire to diet, which Mm -hmm. then contributes to the survival drive to eat so much food. Like, so yes, there are factors that can contribute. Absolutely. Um, but when this habit is developed and when it's maintained, yeah, every time you feel driven to binge, that call is coming from inside the house. It doesn't matter how many other factors you try to solve. Once this is really conditioned in your brain, solving those other things doesn't do much to turn off that drive. So that's one thing I had to really come to terms with. And yes, to answer your question, I absolutely looked for things that were outside of myself that contributed. I mean, that's really how I spent spent about six years in therapy trying to find that answer. And you know, i I think therapy is changing a bit, and that's great. But at the time I was in therapy, it was very much like, let's look to your past, let's figure out, you know, how you didn't get enough love, or how you were rejected, or why you're using food to soothe yourself. And you know, looking at it through that lens but then also like what's going on in your day-to-day life like how is your anxiety leading you to binge how are you feeling lonely and you're trying to soothe with food and i found you know so many things and i found so many reasons and tried to solve them and nothing seemed to matter i mean i could binge when i was happy i could binge when i was not anxious i could binge when i was sad or you know calm and peaceful it was very um yes there were some patterns and links that developed because a lot of times when we do have pain We look for something pleasurable. So, like, it's no coincidence that if we start eating lots of food for whatever reason, then it can become linked to um, negative emotions. Right. And it also, I think that link a lot of times develops because it's suggested to us by mainstream approaches that tell us that's why. So, it's all can become very complicated. And none of that really helped me. And I would suggest to the listeners, like they really take a look. If this is the path you're going down, is it helping you? And if it is great, like if you have stress and it typically leads to a binge and handling the stress better and coping better really helps you avoid the binge, then that's wonderful. Like then that's changing your brain. Um, But for me, that just wasn't the case. So looking outside myself just didn't lead to a cure and it Mm -hmm. was a frustrating path to be on.
0: Yeah. Do you remember how you felt when you realized that um, that it was just you, that you sort of looked, did you do that thing where you looked in the mirror and you were like, okay, it's you and me, let's do this.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I, as you know, from the book, it was a result of me reading a book as well, Rational Recovery by Jack Trimpe, um, The New Cure for Substance Addiction. It was about drugs and alcohol. And he was very, at the time it was an alternative to AA and he was very much like, look, it's not a disease. You do this for pleasure, no matter what you tell yourself, it's a primal drive. He called it the beast brain and it's you, like you're choosing this. And I was like, at first I wanted to push back on it because I'm like, no, like it's my emotions and it's my upbringing and it's all these problems that I have have in my life. But like the more I read, it was like, it was hard hitting and it was kind of a ego hit, I think, to be like, oh my gosh, it's me but then it was also very empowering. Like you Mm -hmm. said, like, all right, we're, we can do this. Because once there was a solution, like once therapy just became very confusing. At some point I like lost track of what I was trying to solve. Like I was trying to solve the past. I was trying to solve the present. I was trying to become less anxious when like 18 years later, I'm still anxious, (laughs) but I don't binge. So like, I don't know how, all that that stuff was going to eventually lead to a cure for me. So realizing that, oh, the cure is like to not act on the urge to binge. Oh, okay, (laughs) I can do that. And uh, before that seemed very elusive because that urge seemed to mean something. Like in therapy, I learned that that urge was, was indicative of my emotional void I was trying to fill or feelings I needed to stuff down or something really deep and significant. But what I learned after reading rational recovery is like, this is a primitive brain function that is normal and it's desire and you just have to like separate from it and not act on it. And that was, I mean, it was life-changing.
0: It's funny, isn't it? How just seeing it through a a sort of different perspective can just completely shift how you look at it. The reason I asked about body positivity is because I uh, don't align with it in in a way that has made me unpopular in certain conversations with friends and colleagues. And the reason is because I remember, I would say probably three or four years before I read Brain Over Binge, a friend of mine said, and I would always whinge about my weight because I was looking for, because as much as I was trying to blame the patriarchy and all of that kind of stuff, I was also looking for my friends to reassure me that actually it's all in your head and um, it's really unfair what's happening to you. And obviously they don't, they just hear somebody whinging about their weight all the time. And I remember a friend saying to me, you know what, Emma, just stop weighing yourself and just go buy how your clothes feel. And if your clothes feel a bit tight, then just, you know, watch what you're eating for a week. Now, honestly, her advice to somebody else would have been really great. But to me woefully unhelpful because I didn't have a handle on what I was eating. I wasn't honest with myself about the quantities I was eating and how much I was eating. So I was never going to be able to exercise that, just take a step off for a week. That was never going to happen. But furthermore, I did stop weighing myself. And then when I got back on the scales about a year later, the weight gain was shocking. So again, it's very unpopular. I weigh myself every single day. And it's desensitized me to that metric. And the only thing I pay attention to is the downward trend over time. I do not pay attention necessarily to the daily weight, but I use that metric to um, Mm -hmm. look at that. Anyway, the point about the body positivity movement is had I really leaned into it, had I accepted it, and had I gone, yeah, you know, I'm going to really get behind this, I would have been willfully denying almost like a very active and very real self-sabotage. And I would have given myself the green light to do that for the rest of my life. And to me, there has been no greater body positivity or body acceptance for me personally than to go, you don't feel good, you're harming yourself, you're eating yourself to a size that is uncomfortable and may potentially have long-term effects impact on your health. Therefore, your body positivity journey is to get on top of this and to lose the weight. But that is not the global definition of how we really understand body positivity. And that's why I've had, I have had some kickback from people.
1: Yeah. I mean, but from what I hear you describing is like, you are getting back to the the weight that is natural and healthy for you. Like you're not trying to meet an unrealistic standard. You're trying to be your own healthy version of yourself, correct? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what I think that we need to get behind as far as people being body positive is that like, we all want to be the healthy version of ourselves. I mean, it's not about just accepting a lack of health, because I know how that feels. And you know how that feels. So yeah, I mean, what, what I'm really adamant about is like, some people get are at their healthy weight, you know, they're eating normally they're taking care of themselves, but they want to be, you know, 10 pounds lighter. Well, that that's when they really need to lean into body positivity, like that they need to accept their own healthy version of themselves. Cause we all sort of have a genetic blueprint and we start going outside of that. We start really trying to suppress our natural weight. It's, it's not going to work. It leads mm-hmm. to more weight gain over time. So I think really accepting who like your, your, sort of weight range that you net your body naturally wants to be when you are having healthy practices when you're not binge eating when you're being active that's where the body positivity i think comes in at least the way i teach it does that make sense
0: it does what what about then again because this is something that i've had some pushback on and i'm guessing that if i've had it you must have had it over the years healthy at every size or healthy at any size where do you stand on that
1: um, I think this similar thing that like, if you ha- do have healthy practices and you are eating, you know, in a normal way that, I mean, not perfectly, no one eats perfectly that you are having, you know, a healthy activity that you're not binging and the way your body's showing up, if it's larger than maybe it should be technically on the BMI chart, then I think, yeah, absolutely. You can be healthy at your natural size, um, whatever that is for you personally. But when you're having these unhealthy practices, um, when you are binge eating and you're artificially way over your natural weight, then I don't think that's healthy. So I think that the health at every size is is the good parts of it is that it does promote healthy practices, regardless of your weight, it's saying no matter what weight you are, you can implement these healthy practices, which do have weight and health benefits. Um, It's not, you know, I I don't know exactly like, as much about the movement. So I don't want to speak too much about it. Mm -hmm. But I just, I think objectively we can't delude people into thinking that unhealthy behaviors are actually healthy. I just don't think that's appropriate.
0: Yes, I agree. And I won't push you on it too much as well, because I do I do know that it can be it can be such a contentious issue to sort of and you don't want to Mm -hmm. get pinned down for being unsympathetic or for being uncharitable. And I think one of the things that I've had is especially in a, in the job that I had, which was sort of in magazines and somewhat high profile, if you like, it was like I was bigger and then I got smaller and then some people felt like I kind of um, joined the Nasty Girl Club because mm-hmm. I went, yeah, you just have to what like eat a bit less <laughs> and look, exercise feels great. And they were like, we thought that you were one of us and now you're doing <laughs> what everyone else
1: told us to do. Yeah. And I definitely felt that. Yeah, and there can be that flip side where almost there's a thin shaming when people like do get healthier than, Oh, then you're not, you're not one of us anymore, which I I've had some concerns about as well. Cause I, my natural body is, is a little on the thinner side. I do, you know, ha- have a decently healthy diet. I do exercise and, you know, I do understand that I don't understand what it's like to be in a body that is well overweight or obese. I mean, I was definitely overweight technically when I was a binge eater, but um you know, there is an experience that I know that I have not had. Therefore, I can't speak to in a way that someone who has that experience could speak Mm -hmm. to. But I do think there is a danger here of us shaming people who are healthy and who lose weight in a healthy, sustainable way, when I think that's a good thing. And people don't deserve to be shamed for that.
0: I call it the Khloe Kardashian effect. It's like Khloe was everyone's favorite Kardashian until she decided to work on herself, lose weight. And now they're like, Oh, what has she done to herself? And I think truthfully it's rooted in jealousy.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I don't know her exact story, but if someone is doing something to themselves, that's unhealthy to make themselves below their natural weight and really Mm. hurting themselves in that way by dieting and restriction, then of course, yeah, like we should celebrate their natural self and, Not want them to do that. But if someone is bringing themselves from a place of not being healthy and not feeling good, and then bringing themselves to a place where they do feel good, then we shouldn't be shaming anyone for that.
0: Mm. Can we talk about food composition? Because uh, the food that you describe in the book that you would binge on, and definitely the food that I would binge on, would almost be like the naughty food. It would be Mm -hmm. the stuff that I thought... Everyone else ate and didn't gain weight for and I couldn't. So I would eat it in secret. And what I've really learned in the last few years is, so so say if I kind of, this is a crude way of saying it, but it's almost like, okay, I like eating a lot, but I don't like the effects of eating a lot. So how can I cheat myself into thinking that I'm eating a lot when I'm not actually? And so for me, that's like, massive stir fries with tons of vegetables that I'm so tired of eating by the end of it that I don't possibly want to have anything else. And I've got my protein in, I've eaten loads of vegetables, but the calorie count is actually pretty low. So I've had a huge, huge plate of food, but the composition, the component parts of it are actually really good for me. Whereas in the past, I would have thrown in as many noodles, as much rice as I could have done because I thought that that was what was delicious. And that was what everyone else could eat and get away with. And now I don't feel like I'm missing out. So is there another piece of the puzzle which comes into... See, I don't look at that and think it's restrictive. I look at that and think it's actually quite sort of um, smart <laughs> because I still feel satisfied. But talk to me a little bit about composition of food because I think that's an important piece that people don't ever really address.
1: Yeah, composition is something that it comes up a lot in like the people I've talked to over the years. And as far as the binge foods most people are eating very similar things like really high carbohydrates, a lot of fat sugar there. But honestly, people can binge on anything. I mean, I've had people I've talked to that binge on vegetables. Like it's, it's more rare, but you can binge on anything. And I think sometimes people can trick themselves and think, Oh, if I'm just binging on all healthy food, then it's not a binge, but it still can cause harmful effects. Like it's still an uncomfortable behavior. So, you know, incorporating these binge foods into your normal diet is something that we address a lot like in coaching and and in my course is that people often have questions have questions like how do I eat these foods then as a part of my normal diet like how much of them so it's definitely something I think that's an individual journey I tend to tell people to eat in the least restrictive way that's possible for them And that means like, you know, obviously if you have an allergy, if you have something like celiac disease, you know, you're not going to be eating those foods that create a problem. So their least restrictive way is different from someone who has no food allergies, no food sensitivities. So you really want to be able to empower yourself to eat, to know that you have control regardless of the types of food, regardless of the composition, like in the example for you, like yeah, this is the way you like to eat and you like to have a lot of vegetables and you feel like it's satisfying and that works for you, then great. But I think it's important for people to realize, okay, you could also have some noodles and still remain in control. Mm-hmm. I think once you set foods up as these foods, I have no control over, these foods are triggers, these foods, you know, I once I start eating, I can't stop. It almost becomes self-fulfilling. I do mm-hmm. try to encourage people to learn to feeling control around any food and to realize they can eat any food in moderation, that doesn't mean you'll always choose those foods. I think some people think, oh, if I give myself permission to have the pasta, let's say, then I'll never stop. But a lot of times that's a symptom of restricting. A lot of times you only feel that way around that food because you're making it forbidden in your life. So learning to eat it in moderation a lot of times we will have you eating it less, you know, allowing the foods and ends with you eating less of the foods, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be a really empowering thing to see.
0: Yes, I I agree with you. And I don't want to give the impression that I don't have noodles. It's just, it's that thing of, I know that if I do have them, my response to simple carbs is that I just, I get hungrier again, quicker than mm-hmm. if I yeah. exclude them and I don't look at that as restriction I look at that as oh I just don't really I'll have that every once in the blue moon and I think it's it's that switch as opposed to giving into the craving but I want to talk mm-hmm. to you as well about um the different perspectives through which we look at our bodies and the way that we eat because again um I have a really good friend who has really fought for her life in fairness from a restrictive eating disorder has fought really really hard And I feel as though I've had my own tumultuous journey from an overeating disorder. And we are very good friends and we love each other, but we are fundamentally at odds. And we really, um, we have to just agree to disagree on quite a few things because my coping mechanisms to her are major red flags, which is to change the composition of my food I lost 30 pounds when I first read Brain Over Binge. I was like, I'm not going to restrict anything. And I love an apricot croissant. So I'm going to have an apricot croissant every week. And I dropped the weight while still having my beloved apricot croissant. But now I don't have it, not because I'm restricting, but because actually I don't like how I feel when I eat something like that. So I will have it, but I won't have it as frequently as I used to. So for her, me saying that is like a, but that sounds like restriction, Emma. Equally, when she talks to me about her coping mechanism and about how she'll have anything and she doesn't Um, she will snack and all of these things that for me would be dangerous and would tip me back into old patterns of behavior they really work for her so we're constantly at odds whilst loving each other deeply (laughs) and I get and it's again it's that perspective thing isn't it and I think the over I think we talk so much about restrictive eating disorders and we understand the complexities of those but I don't think people are as literate in the complexities of overeating disorders and bearing yeah. all of that in mind, more people are impacted by an overeating disorder than by a restri- by, than by restrictive eating disorders.
1: Yeah, that's a it's a good point, and I I alluded to that a little in the beginning that I tend to see people on both spectrums. That some people are really from that dieting background, even like anorexia, and that that was my background as well. And for those people, I think that allowing the food, really learning to tell yourself that you can have anything and learn how to not restrict and learn how to have that croissant every day is great. It's one, it's really, really, really helpful. But for people who really have overeaten since childhood, who have this habit of just constantly eating and having whatever they want, then it is more a little bit more about reining it in and learning to see how foods affect you and choosing foods based on not only how they taste, but how they make you feel. Now that also can apply to the restricting type people as well. But I think they need to get through a period of really allowing and making sure they're not going back down that path. But no one wants to be eating just junk forever. No one wants to just be like following just their taste all the time, because we have so many modern foods that are really overly stimulating. And I think everyone at at some point needs to step back and say, okay, like, how is this making me feel? And that's not, I think you make a good point that you don't see it as restrictive and it's not, it's a self-caring practice, but it, it's a little more, um, I guess and I, I was going to use the word dangerous. I don't know if that's the right word, but for someone with a restricting background to start doing that, like, mm-hmm. because they could get triggered down an unhealthy path. Like, oh, well, this makes me feel bad. And this makes me feel bad. And then suddenly they're back to restricting. So it is a very individual journey of how, you know, different foods are allowed or just um, not restricted, but just denied because in favor of other foods that make you feel better. I like to think of it as like, you're choosing a food, Instead of the croissant, you're choosing something that makes you feel better, that you still enjoy, but that doesn't leave you feeling bad. And that's not restriction. That's just making a choice. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're eating nothing, you know. So I, I think that's the difference. If if that made sense,
0: mm-hmm. I am. Um, well, I guess I would be. It would be wrong with me not to bring this up. Thing is, it's so topical. But what do you make of a Zen pick? Oh.
1: That's a that's a good question. I'm actually having a podcast come out. I interviewed an eating disorder expert about it. And I do think it's a problem for the eating disorder world, especially with the restricting types the people who are always looking for unhealthy ways to, or ways to lose weight, no matter how unhealthy they are. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a big topic and I think it's contraindic- contraindicated for people with eating disorders. And I think it's probably being prescribed to people with eating disorders like because they're not telling their doctor which is i think a very scary and dangerous thing so i think anyone with an eating disorder would be best to stay away f- from these medications that's my you know non medical advice
0: so um we'll go into a little bit what it does but like just to talk about people with eating disorders i've been doing some research recently and when I read the figures about the number of people who are known to be impacted by an overeating disorder, something that doesn't necessarily fit the exact definition of binge eating disorder, but is in that neighborhood, it's vast. And what really struck me is that, I and I said it in the introduction, for a long time I thought I was greedy and lazy, had no willpower. But actually to understand that what I was dealing with was, and it is described as a mental illness when you... Uh, interrogate any mental health professional about eating disorders it made me wonder about the amount of people who are eating and don't realize that the way in which they are eating is actually part of a disordered eating Mm -hmm. so that's one thing and then you talk about uh ozempic and being prescribed for people with eating disorders and that potentially being a danger but i've listened to a lot of podcasts recently about ozempic which and now it's it's um an appetite inhibitor isn't it that was um prescribed or designed for diabetics who were really struggling with insulin resistance and therefore weight management and when i have heard accounts from people and even friends of mine who have taken it or um a a similar brand or um a similar type maybe a watered down version they all say the same thing which is like I think this is how skinny people must feel. I think this is just how normal people must live their lives cuz I don't think about food anymore.
1: You know, it's and you can't have that without side effects. That's I guess what I would tell people is that okay, like I can see it possibly having a use for people who, you know, really can't control their appetites. They're just constantly eating and like you said it could potentially bring people back down to feeling normal, but what, what side effects is it having? Like, this is literally slowing down the emptying of the digestive system. It's affecting hormones, insulin, and there are side effects. Like what is it? Thyroid cancer is like one of the big ones, gastroparesis. So is it worth it to you? Like, you know, people who, this is an example I thought of, like people who are alcoholics, we don't just like shut off their desire, their thirst. Like I feel like people who are overeating, we should, we can't just shut off their desire for food artificially. I think it's a matter of learning to work with our body and, and learning how to do it in a natural way is just more sustainable. I mean, not to mention the cost, not to mention the fact that people who are on this, you know, need to stay on it. Otherwise they gain the weight back. I just don't, I don't think it's a long-term side effect free solution although again i'm not a doctor any you know medical decisions are between you and your doctor but i wrote in brain over binge that i took a medication that that did that for me it was actually anti seizure medication that at the time they were prescribing for people with binge eating and it it did a very similar thing it shut down my appetite just overall but it didn't work forever it worked for about 3 months i binged so much less over those 3 months i lost weight but I feel like if I would have stayed on it and it would have kept, quote unquote, working, I probably would have been in big danger of going back down the anorexia path because it really cut down my appetite. And, and I worry about malnourishment and people who are on this, like it's really allowing people to kind of starve themselves without having that natural biological survival drive. That often leads to binging and of course we don't want it to lead to binging but that survival response is very important like we are supposed to feel driven to eat we're supposed to have these appetites that's how we survive as humans so we start shutting that down across the board i just i don't know i just can't see it being a good thing long term
0: yeah and i my thing that i come back to is i feel incredibly grateful that i have shut down or, or definitely quietened down the chatter mm-hmm. of the the food stories in my head. And it sounds like what I've done over a period of time, your book obviously really helped, is the sort of instantaneous effect of empic So I would rather say to somebody, well, look, here are the tools that it's going to be a slightly longer journey, but these are going to last and they're going to be less expensive. So with that in mind, as we draw to the end of our time together, if someone is listening to this and they're thinking, right, I'm going to be really honest with myself here. I... I don't necessarily fuel myself and feed myself in a way that is doing me good that is supporting my long-term health goals or indeed my how I want to look or feel what is step number one
1: um I you know I would think to look into binging and see if that's what you're struggling with like I, like you mentioned, there could be people out there overeating and eating in ways that feel bad and not even realize that they're struggling with binge eating, you know, and, you know, I guess the definitions, you know, between overeating and binging can sometimes get clouded, but really take an honest look at your behavior. And if you're really feeling out of control around food, like just get information on binging. I mean, I provide plenty at Brain Over Binge. You can look into my books, you can, you know, to just start getting, seeking out that support, obviously telling your doctor is an important thing to always try to encourage people to get whatever medical help they need, because eating disorders do have medical consequences. So, I mean, I do think that's an important step one. I mean, just looking at your behavior, seeing kind of defining what you're struggling with and and seeking that, that medical support if necessary, and looking for any, you know, outside help that you need. What role does
0: exercise take in this entire uh, process for you? Because in the book you talk about the excessive. I mean, I could really feel you when you're on the cross trainer for like hour number three, and the Ugh. guy is like, "When are you getting off that thing?" Um, but but you were so emotionally connected to that machine because you had those calories to burn off because you were I know. you were purging yeah. with exercise. What role does exercise play in recovery? Do you think? I mean, you can talk about your own, and you can talk generally about how you've then worked with other people.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, for me, the desire to exercise for those long hours went away when I stopped binging because I felt so out of control during the binges that when my control came back, I felt like I have to do something about this. I have to quote unquote, correct it when really it just perpetuated the whole cycle. But, um, at the time that was the only solution I, I could think of. I tried self-induced vomiting, which is super dangerous, would never recommend anyone doing that. Thankfully I never could. Um, so exercise was what I turned to. And once I stopped binging, I just there was no need to do that anymore. I still enjoy exercise. I exercise probably six days a week, you know, 30 minutes, something like that. I mean, weights running, things like that, but it's not um, something that consumes my life. And I do think exercise is a very important thing, but when people are ready for it really depends. I mean, people who are in underweight and real medical risk exercise, a lot of times is not advised people who are more on the overeating side, overweight. I think exercise can be a really helpful thing to for mental state. I mean, it, it helps increase, you know, all the feel good brain chemicals. It makes you feel better. It, It helps you start building those healthy behaviors. And I do think it's helpful as far as helping your body reach that, that natural weight that's for, for you. I mean, it's not the only thing, of course, Um, We need to look at a lot of healthy habits, but exercise, I I do promote um, unless people have a really negative um, association with it, unless it's really triggering for them. But yeah, healthy, moderate exercise, I think is a very important thing.
0: I was chatting to friends at a dinner the other day, and they were saying, oh, which is very nice of them to say, but they were saying, you know, Emma, like, what's your secret? How have you done it? And I said, actually, honestly, I released, because I used to run a lot. I used to run every single day. I ran half marathons and everything. And I said, actually, I just, I started exercising less, but I trusted that if I did three strength training sessions a week, and I did that consistently over a period of six months, consistency with some, you know, days off along the way, because life gets in the way. I would trust that over six months, I would reap the benefits. So I would, I really detached from the exercise, having any impact on a sort of atoning for what I had eaten. I relaxed and detached from this idea that it would make me look a certain way and just focused on the repetitive action and the consistency and how that made me feel. And that is yeah. that, And that is one of the greatest feelings I have ever been able to tap into.
1: That's amazing. Yeah, it's really disconnecting all those negative associations with exercise. And so many people with eating disorders use exercise as a way to punish themselves as a way to compensate for the calories, you know, burn a certain number of calories. It's just, that makes it very unenjoyable. When exercise can be a very enjoyable thing, it can really make you feel good and healthy. And that's what I try to yeah teach people to develop positive associations with exercise that really have nothing to do with food or weight.
0: If I've been sitting down and having this conversation with you six years ago, my eyes would have been a lot bigger. They probably would have been a bit wet with tears and I would have been desperate for you to tell me a secret. And I would have told you that I had tried everything and I would have told you that I wanted it more than I wanted anything else. And then I would have gone away and I would have eaten in a way that did not support that, what I just said. And I just always want to try and meet people where they are and if anyone is listening to this and feels like that because I think you've probably experienced this way more than someone like me having spoken to and worked with so many people over the years who have experienced this kind of issue with food and eating disorders and binging you can feel so so helpless and you can feel like there just is no way out and I think it's really brilliant to read your book and realize that there is and I hope that I can add to that voice and say there there really is for somebody who was desperate so I'm just curious from your experience if someone is listening to this and they are thinking I've tried everything there's no way it's just never going to happen to me and hands up that's really what I thought before I read Brain Over Binge I thought I just have to accept that I'm plus size if someone's there what would you what would you say to them
1: I I think what you just said is really powerful that you were there. I was there. I was 100% where you are. Like, I can't overcome this recoveries for other people. I'm just, I have this for the rest of my life. I'll be binging for the rest of my life. And if I can do it, honestly, there's nothing special about me. You read my book. I'm a mess. Like, you know, (laughs) like I put everything out there in the book. Like, Binging controlled my life. I felt like every day was just a struggle. Every day was, how am I going to overcome this? How is it possible for me to live without this? And sitting here, you know, eighteen years later, eighteen years removed from my last binge, I promise you, it's possible. And it may not come right away. It may not happen like a light switch. But if you keep practicing, if you keep learning, if you keep trying different things, you will find something that works for you, and and you can live free of the binging habit.
0: I'm going to ask you one final question, actually, um, which is about the, which is about having shared this because I've had this situation, which means I'm guessing you've had it too. I'm obviously a lot closer to my most recent binge than you are. And sometimes having shared all of this, somebody will DM me and might just say, oh my God, I binged last night and we'll just sort of explain what happened. And I'm really glad that I've created a safe space where they feel like they can say it, because even the fact that you can say it to somebody is really freeing and is incredibly helpful. But I would be lying if I said that it didn't sometimes rattle my recovery. And I wondered if you've ever had that experience of you share, but you have to share in a boundaried way because you don't want it to impact the journey that you're on.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like I am so far removed from my recovery that that's not a thing anymore as far as like worrying it's going to impact me at all. In the beginning, I mean, by the time I published the book, I was like six years from my last binge. So I still felt pretty solid. But I I can't say that I never thought about it. I mean, for sure, like someone would say, Oh, I binged after like five years. I'm like, Oh, is that possible? <laughs> you know, so there's definitely um you know, just being able to hold space for someone to listen to them and still stay on your own journey. I think I've been able to do that pretty well. Um, the thing that comes up for me now is like when people say, oh, I just binged, I, I read your book, but I, you know, it didn't work and things like that. I I wish so much that my bin, my book could help everyone because I don't want anyone stuck in this binge eating habit. But what I do know is that even people who do read the book and who do binge, like that doesn't mean you won't get better. That Mm. means that you just need to get more practice. Like there's people who binge several times after reading the book and still go on to have a complete recovery. Like it is something that happens on different timelines. Like I've said a few times in this, in this show, but, um, you know, I I wish it could help everyone, but my goal is really to provide an alternative to what's already out there. And if this is just a piece of your own recovery, then, you know, I'll, I feel like I'll Have done my job. Like, if this just adds something to what you're already doing, if you want to take some, you know, take what makes sense to you for my approach and leave the rest. But I think recovery and what I've learned over the years is is, it is an individual thing Mm -hmm. and just looks a little different for each person. But I hope that, you know, the ideas I provide can provide some positive benefit for you.
0: I think that's the thing I really came away with is I didn't feel that your book was prescriptive. I felt it offered your experience and then I could take from it what I needed. And in understanding that the call was coming from inside the house, I I kind of knew with clarity what it was that I needed to take away. And like I said, it's like I went to bed that night and I woke up and it was like I'd had a software update. And I looked at food completely differently and that was, I mean, that's obviously a really wonderful experience. Unless I said, my recovery hasn't been linear, but it hasn't, I've never gone back to the way that I was before ever. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is great
1: because some people who do binge think, oh, I'm back to square one. I'll never get this. But no, like you just keep going. You realize that all a binge means is that you acted on one urge. It just means your primitive brain called you to binge because that's its job right now because it's maintaining a habit. And you followed it one time and you can not follow it the next time. And the less you follow it, the weaker it gets mm-hmm. until it just goes away. I mean, anyone who's ever broken a habit knows that the desire eventually goes away. You know, with food, there's some more nuance and complexity because we all have to keep eating. It's mm-hmm. not like stopping smoking when you can just never touch a cigarette again, but you have to keep eating. So so there's a journey there, but you absolutely have the power you know, to do this. And I, that's the message I really wanted to get across in Brain Over Binge, that no one is broken. No one is beyond help, that we all you know, have the ability to change our brains and live without binging.
0: Well, I owe you a, a huge debt of gratitude because the book really was the a uh, a very significant there are a few domino pieces i've talked about them before i had my breast reduction then in my recovery i had my picture taken with elizabeth hurley never have your picture taken with elizabeth hurley
1: ever <laughs> good idea
0: <laughs> i i i honestly go online and try to find a bad picture of elizabeth hurley none exists she is just okay. one of those people and then based on how terrible i felt then <laughs> i finally read your book on someone's recommendation but after when they had originally suggested it to me i had wanted to punch them in the face because i was like i don't binge i don't, i don't overeat because i was that Mm -hmm. far in denial about my own actions so it was a really significant domino in in one of the most empowering journeys i've ever been on and continue to be on so thank you so so much i will of course put the link to brain over binge both editions into the show notes i will put the link to your podcast and if there are any specific podcast episodes that are a great entry point that you think um, listeners should find, let me know. And I'll make sure that that one is flagged up in the show notes. And I'll obviously share your social media details so people can follow you. But Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Emma. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gun Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns if you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast then click the link to join the Facebook forum the link to join is in the show notes which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode you have to answer a couple of questions but we cannot wait to see you there come over and join the conversation thank you so much for listening I will see you on the next one